You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. It's pretty simple. If you are looking for a particular battery, any battery, you need to stop into an Interstate Batteries retail location and talk with a battery specialist. Whether you need a specific battery for your truck or a camper or a rangefinder or something as simple as a TV remote control, these guys will help you find what you need. Very simple right? If you want to learn about the culture of the company, how it's been around for a very long time and how it is a company that is fully focused on its customers and its employees, you need to go check out the website, interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Hey everybody, this is a special episode and it's a collaboration between Houndsman XP and Nine Finger Chronicles. And Nine Finger Chronicles, for our audience on the Houndsman XP side that doesn't know, is a, uh, a podcast that's hosted by the Sportsman's Nation Network owner, Dan Johnson. And we are gr- very grateful to have you on today, Dan. How are you? Chris, I'm good. The sun is shining in Iowa and... Uh... I went out mushroom hunting yesterday, and I I didn't find any mushrooms, but it's getting really close. It's getting really close to going out and finding some mushrooms. I had my kids out with me, so uh, it's when you can get outside, it's a good day. Yeah, you guys have uh, are normally behind on your spring a little bit. It seems like you've been a little farther behind this spring, but uh, you're a little farther north than us. Mushrooms are coming up everywhere here. I've seen a lot of our our listeners and supporters on our social media platforms that are posting pictures of, of mushrooms. And of course I've been slaying the crappie and the bluegill. So that's always a good sign for spring coming on. Yeah. I saw a couple pictures of you with those uh, crappie and I was a little, little bit jealous because one of my absolute favorite meals period is if I can get some fish, fried fish and some mushrooms, that's a win, man. That is a good win. You know, I'm I'm kind of hit or miss on the morel deal. Uh, I love yeah. I love them, but when I was in college, I don't know if I if I got one that wasn't a morel, but I I got ill eating mushrooms. So I can eat a few at a time, but I also have a tendency of gorging myself when. <laughs> <laughs> so that could have had something to do with it. So it may not have been it was the wrong mushroom. It just may you ate you ate five pounds of them. It may have been a lack of self control. <laughs> Yeah, everybody that knows me, my mom says I was eating steak by the time I was like four months old. Um, you know, 
never had any problems with appetite and uh, self-control is one of those things. I'm lucky that I've got a high metabolism because I probably should weigh about 350 pounds the way uh, I eat. Well, with this whole quarantine, my, uh, my numbers are going up. So, uh, I, as much as I like to be outside since this whole thing started, there's been a lot of inside time too, because this actually, I feel like Iowa, it's been a wet spring so far and it's been cooler than normal. So that means we've been inside a lot. And what do I do? Uh, when it's inside, I, I graze all day long. Yeah. So. I saw a funny meme the other day. Somebody had hung a sign, taped it, taped a piece of paper to a shelf in the refrigerator. It says, you're not hungry. You're bored. Go away. <laughs> I need one of those. I do too. I do too. You go over there and you peek in there. And, yep. Yep. So no doubt about it. Hey, we are going to talk about this is going to be an exciting topic, and we've talked about doing this for some time. You know, Nine Fingers Chronicle, how would you describe your show, Dan? Well, you know, obviously I live in Iowa, and uh, majority of the animals that I chase, you know, are, you know, whitetail. I'm a, I'm a whitetail nut. I was, I'm not going to say I was born into an outdoor family. Uh, I mean, I was born into a farming family. And, uh, so we had livestock and stuff and it wasn't, I did some, some hunting, I did some trapping at an early age and then I got into high school and I, I kind of put hunting on the back seat and I did the girls, I did the sports, <laughs> I did, you know what I mean? I, oh, I did yeah. that, I did that kind of thing, went to college. Um, I did some outdoor, I did fishing and some turkey hunting and some deer hunting, but not, you know, not like I am now. And then somewhere around 2006, I just cannonballed into whitetail deer hunting, bow hunting specifically. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, I'm, if, if you're looking for a definition of who I am, I'm a bow hunter and that kind of carries over into what the nine finger chronicles is about. That podcast is ma majority focused on bow hunting, uh, not necessarily strategies and tactics, uh, but stories from average Joes who have been successful or have unique stories, you know, not necessarily in the Midwest, but really from all over the nation. We talk about conservation. We talk about, um, oh, geez, like other species. Turkey hunting obviously is a hot topic right now. And, right. uh, you know, I take uh, I take Western adventures every year. So we discuss we discuss a little bit about everything, man. And, and it's just it's it's a it's a podcast that is basically just me and a guest BSing about what we love. And that's the outdoors. Right. Right. And people can find it on Sportsman's Nation, of course. Uh, yep. And uh, right there alongside our podcast. So mm -hmm. really excited. I mean, we found we found Sportsman's Nation through Clay Newcomb and Bear Hunting Magazine. Yep. And uh, it's been a great relationship. We're we're actually starting our this is our kind of our anniversary of our first year. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. Uh, I saw that. Uh, man, did you start one April ago or was it June? Did you start last year? May, it, it's May first. May. That's right. May first. So, so this, today is. This one, is. This is the one year anniversary. Yes, sir. Now I feel special. You did. You should. We're sharing <laughs> sharing our one year anniversary together, Dan. Good deal. Social distance, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know, this whole social distancing thing. I've watched Fox News, and when they first had to start go to social, 
going into this social distancing thing, I mean, every conversation they were having was a train wreck. Yeah. And I told uh, my partner, Steve Fielder, I said, we've been doing this stuff for a year. <laughs> Especially if there's an audio delay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We, ha- we have to deal with that all the time where it's uh, you have to wait maybe four seconds for someone to answer. And it just becomes a nightmare on the editing side of things. And, right. and so guys like us, we're used to it. That's right. And you watch it, You watch these professional broadcasters that have had to dumb themselves down to something like Skype. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's and awesome. They're getting paid more than us, though. A lot more. I'd like to have <laughs> I'd like to have Fox and Friends just one of their uh, budgets, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, hey, we're going to talk. We're going to have a, a discussion that that seems to to always pop up. Um you know, it, it has to do with user conflict, and when we say things like user conflict, we're talking about hunters who are trying to use the same resources or the same landscapes uh, to hunt on. And and user conflict would be like, how does a turkey hunter compete with a, a rabbit hunter? Does he compete with a deer hunter? Does he compete with a, a, a coon hunter or a houndsman? And so there's a lot of there can be a lot of animosity surrounding different user groups and uh, no small one that has gone unnoticed. And in my career as a conservation officer, 28 years was the conflict between deer hunters and coon hunters or houndsmen in general and uh, dealt with a lot of those conflicts over the years. And I feel like in Indiana, we were able to, address those effectively because of my relationship with the Indiana Sportsman's Roundtable and uh, the president of that organization, Gene Hopkins. We had him on a few few weeks ago uh, on previous shows. And, and um, because we built relationships, we were able to negotiate some of these perceptions that there, there needed to be a, a competition or a conflict between these two groups. Are you, do you have, what's been your experience with that, Dan? Uh, well, I, I don't own my own property, right? So I either knock on doors to get permission to hunt or I have to hunt public, right? So uh, just, just the other day, I, I was turkey hunting on a, a piece of public and there was a guy who decided he wanted to go out and shoot his gun on public and I was trying to chase turkeys. Mm-hmm. So... Right there, I was like, man, this really sucks, but, you know, it's public land. He has the rights to be on it the same as I do. He's not breaking any laws. I I can't go up to him and tell him, hey, man, I'm trying to turkey hunt out here. What are you doing? Because he has, the, he has you know, the equal rights to that property that I do. So it's just one of those things for, where that specific example, I just packed it up. I left, and I went somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? Right. And – when it comes to deer hunting per se, I, I do have a property where every year the landowner, uh, it's one of my main properties that I hunt in really hard in October and November, but every October late, it's usually late October or early November. The landowner has a guy with, uh, uh, he's a coon hunter right. and he, he runs his dogs through that property multiple times uh throughout a which typically is like a week period he comes through twice or maybe three times Mm -hmm. and uh i've never 
I've never complained about it because the landowner knows him. The landowner has given him permission and the landowner has given me per permission. And I don't, number one, I'm not going to complain about it because it's not my property. Well, and I don't want to lose that property just from, you know, complaining about something that, you know, I, I'm lucky to have this property. And if it, if it means dealing with a guy running uh, dogs on it, then I'm going to deal with a guy running dogs on it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's probably the number well, I know the number one challenge to hunters and the number one threat to hunters we, we the anti-hunting crowd's an easy target for us to think about you know obviously right. that is you know the the threat or the perceived threat but the number one thing that is threatening hunting in the united states right now and you can search anything you want is access the yes. the availability for people to go hunt yes. and so that's that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about how we coexist with our fellow hunters out there, even though they may not be cut from the same cloth or the, you know, the same stripe that that we are. And and it's going to be a. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. But uh, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is people are very passionate passionate about their hunting. And with our time being limited to certain certain times that we have available, I mean, life is busy, so right. we put a lot of effort and we cherish that time we have in the field. And so when there is a conflict or a perceived conflict, it gets very dramatic. Yeah. It can get very dramatic. That's a fact. And I, I'll be honest with you, uh, when I whenever I hear – these topics, right? It's also people being selfish, to be honest with you. Uh, and I hate to say it. I feel like we sugarcoat it when we say passionate, but at the people who are complaining about it are, are being in a way selfish because there are laws for, in most, most places. There's laws that are be, being put in place and there's seasons that are being put in place to help you know, to help this kind of thing happen. But what they don't want to do is they don't want to communicate with the other side of the table, whether it's, uh, let's just say, um, let's just say the deer hunting versus running dogs mm -hmm. conversation here, uh, for just as an example, instead of just bitching about something, I, I need to come to you and I need to have this conversation with you and, and, and talk across the aisle, so to speak, with the other group of people, instead of just complaining about it and not doing anything th that, that doesn't make any headway there. And then people, both parties put up shields and then all they right. want to do is defend themselves instead of communicate. And as we all know, right, we're, we're both, uh, we're both married men, right? <laughs> Communication yes. is, is key on, on any, any topic. To success. It's, it's a key to success. I can tell you that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when I don't yeah. when I don't effectively communicate, I I've, I've kind of learned what the outcome is going to be on that end. And that's an interesting <laughs> that's that's an interesting topic. And I, I want to share something from my experience. And uh, it's something that your audience can can understand something my audience can understand. One of the biggest time sinks, you know, time robbers that I had as a conservation officer, fish and wildlife officer was the conflict between sportsmen uh every year it would always start about mid-october when when people really 
gearing up or they were in the middle of their season and I've got a tree stand on, a, on my property. Let's just say it's on my property that I hunt in and the leaves are starting to fall and I look up and I see a tree stand that is sitting 50 feet on the other side of the property line. Okay, these landowners would call me and say, I know that there's a there's a guy that's going to hunt that stand and he's going to shoot a deer that's on my property. It's facing my tree. It's facing my property. You know, I know he's going to shoot a deer on my side of the property. Can you go talk to him? And at first, when you're a rookie, you're like, oh, sure, I can solve all your problems for you. You know, and I'll go <laughs> talk to him. Well, that doesn't that does, as I gain more experience, I learned to tell these guys, well, who's your neighbor? Well, he's some guy from Indianapolis. Have you ever talked to him? Well, I've seen him. I've waved at him. And I, I said, why don't you go up there with a thermos of coffee or a couple beers and sit down and get to know your neighbor? Right. And if you do that and you build a relationship with your neighbor, he is not going to want to do something to impede on that relationship that you two have. And and I found that that was a very successful way for landowners to coexist and and we can also do that among sporting groups you know if I, i've got several places that i hunt indiana is not a big public land state uh so i've got to be able to learn to get along with other users of that property and if right. i can learn who is deer hunting there and go talk to them build a relationship with them share some experiences with them maybe take them hunting there that that goes a lot farther than griping about it on social media yeah. And then half the time those people don't know there's a problem or they don't know there's an issue. And then they're taken off guard by when they when they do find out there's a problem or an issue. And then, again, that puts them in when someone's taken off guard, they put their shield up and they go straight into defense mode. Absolutely. The time to resolve resolutions is or resolve problems is not at the time of a crisis. You know, yeah. if you do your legwork up front. Now you've got a relationship with this guy. You know, I'm, I'm drive down the road. Like I said, I hunt several places with my hounds, uh, and I'll drive by and realize that this deer camp is occupied that night. Okay, well, I'm going to go on down the road because I know those guys aren't there to, to listen to my hounds. They're there to deer hunt the next day. So I'll go down the road, and I'll find some place to hunt where, where it's not occupied. Yeah, yeah. Yep, that's uh, that's something that I, I deal with uh, at, uh, like I said, on my main farm is, and I know that uh, we talked about this a while ago, some of the statistics that are involved, but mm -hmm. he, my firsthand experience is when he runs dogs through the property, uh, let's just say I, I hunt it two days in a row, and he runs his dogs through there uh, at maybe after I get, because he's doing it in dark right mm -hmm. he's not doing it during the day he's doing it during the night so basically i'll get out of the tree stand i'll see that uh, uh when i check my trail cameras i'll see that he has come through the property and the deer movement has changed the next two or three days four days maybe even a little bit longer and it takes some time for the property to rebound and this is just off of my experience right and it may be that it may be the dogs and it and I don't know really, but it may be the dogs or it may be him driving his side by side through the property, uh, you know, sh shooting a gun or however he, you know, if they're up in a tree, shoots a gun or however he gets them. And, uh, 
then he goes away and it takes about, uh, you know, four days for the property to rebound to where the deer movement, I feel like the deer movement kind of comes back to normal. And, uh, it's just something that I have to, it's, it's, a it's a problem that I have to work around every year. It's nothing that I get upset about. It's just something that, you know, when, when life throws you an obstacle, you have to learn how to overcome it. And that's, that's just what I do. I just, I have to wait and I have to be patient. I wait for it to rebound and then it gets good again. So, well, we want to, we want to have the discussion about that, Dan. We want to yeah. talk about, and it, it doesn't have to be, it, it can be a spirited debate here about yeah. those things because you have, you have your feelings on that. And yep. I know my listeners have feelings you're, you're about whether or not that affects deer hunting or not. Um, and I know your listeners do as well. So yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, Let's have a, a a real discussion about that and yeah. and see if we can bridge some gaps here or at least give people something to think about that, right. that may be on the other side of the aisle on this. So there's a couple me, things. Go ahead. You, you, oh, I was going with it. I was going to say, let me play devil's advocate for a second and let's talk about uh, let's talk about uh, a state that allows the use of dogs to run deer. Okay. I've talked with, I've talked with guys who they grew up, they grew up running dogs, uh, to, for deer. Right. And then they would run them and then they would shoot them. And then that's, you know, they'd have, it's basically like driving deer. And then another guy would post up on a different side of the property and, uh, and then they would shoot them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, that's how they cut their teeth. That was their introduction to the outdoors, right. Which is great to have, you know, a kid learn to love the outdoors through an activity like that. So then I have, cause on my podcast, I have conversations with everybody, right. Then we have some other guys who live in a state like that and they, whether they're a property owner, they're a landowner that borders up some ground and they have dogs hop on their property that they, they don't, they don't want dogs on their property. And you and I both know that a dog can't walk up to a fence or, or an imaginary line, let's say, and say, well, I'm not supposed to cross here. I'm going to turn around and, uh, go the other way. Right. Dogs don't, they don't think like that. And so they obviously get extremely pissed off when something like that happens. They got dogs especially if they are managing their property for deer hunting and then the dogs come through and maybe a person has to come through to get the dogs off that property or whatever, there's people or things on their property that they do not want there. So they get upset. Mm -hmm. Or if they're a public land, you know, they're hunting on public land, which allows dogs on it. They feel that their time and I think we talked about this a little bit already, but their time is being ruined because they feel that when when uh, someone runs dogs on the property, it means there's less of a chance for them to be successful, whether they're a gun or a bow hunter, because the dogs are scaring the deer away and they're running the deer all over the place. So um, those are, are the comments that I hear uh, most when I talk to people who uh, live in an area that it is legal to run dogs to hunt deer. Yeah. 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 I'm not, I, I'm really kind of ignorant on the deer houndsman uh, practice running deer with hounds. 
Yeah. Um, it's not something that is, is legal in Indiana. I haven't had to deal with that. Uh, in, in my case, if a dog's running a deer, that's why I have an e-collar so I can correct it. Um, because that's, that's not what I do, but I have had conversations so I can speak to it generally. Um, you, you broke it up into two things there. One, you had private property and you had public property. You know, I'll, I'll I'll address the public property side first because I think that's the easiest and, and I'll take the easy way out here, uh, on part of this discussion anyway. You know, but, but what my question is, is why does a guy that chooses to hunt deer from a tree stand feel like he is getting cheated of his time if a deer dog comes through there? Because couldn't we flip that around and say that to the houndsman as well? His time's being cheated because he has to make concessions for the guy that's hunting from a tree stand. You know, it's public, yeah. public property. Yeah. And, um, uh, it's, it's very, it, it, we've all paid for it. We've all, um, we have to put up with all kinds of things that go on, on public property, even as, as, as hunters with non hunters using the property, you know, you go down into Hoosier national property. I cruised through there. I was able to, uh, uh take a drive around Hoosier national last year between, uh, the morning hunt and the afternoon hunt, I just decided to cruise through some of my old stomping grounds. And I was amazed at the number of mountain bikers and trail trail hikers that were in the woods on opening weekend of deer season, firearm season. Yeah. 30 years ago, that was unheard of. People yeah. didn't dare go to the woods, you know, <laughs> unless you were hunting. Right. So, I mean, we've got that conflict. So when I, when I think of, of one of the main things that I see and I hear from houndsmen in the South who use deer dogs is it is something that goes back to the very fibers of the Southern way of life. So you are, you are getting into something that somebody's grandparents, great grandparents, great uncles, great, great uncles were all involved in and, when you start talking about that stuff, it gets as it gets as real as talking about, you know, the the Confederate battle flag. Yeah, yeah, yep. That's a uh, that's you know that's uh, a serious topic. I, you know, like I don't know if the tradition uh, side of things is as steep in Iowa for deer hunting as it would be in Wisconsin. Let's let's say, for example, uh, when I whenever I think of a state that has a deep rooted deer hunting tradition, let's mm-hmm. say like firearm season opening day where they I don't know if they still do this, but literally would cancel school right. because it, it is that Friday is the first day of deer season mm-hmm. and they would they would have no school for X number of days because it's deer season. And I can understand the tradition that where the tradition um lies for somebody who it's been in their family for hundreds of years, right? They've been doing this for a very long time, just like uh, some of these camps up in Wisconsin. And I know right now there's a internal battle between bow hunters and gun hunters because, uh, they're thinking in Wisconsin about extending the firearm season an, an additional amount of time. Well, the, the bow hunters don't want that. And the gun hunters, Think, feel that the bow hunters have 
enough, like have too much time. So what we've created is this internal battle where people are having to pick sides. And I feel that there is a way to, to work it all out. So everybody is treated fairly, Mm -hmm. but it's just, it's another thing that I feel. And from what I've read online, and from the articles that I've read about this, you know, about this uh, situation is less people are talking about it and more people are pointing fingers at each other and right. just yelling. Yeah. And as we all know, if I'm yelling at you, you're going to yell back at me and then we're not even talking. We're just yelling. Mm-hmm. We're just we're not even listening to each other. Well, let me let me throw it out like this. I want to I want to kind of go back, circle back to I answered the part about the public land and. and yeah. Can, can we circle back to the private property issues? Absolutely. I think, Absolutely. I think, I think one of the th- main things, Dan, if we go back to that conversation we were having earlier about getting to know your neighbor, that's, that's where it has to start. Right. Um, but the tradition of Southern hunting, most of these houndsmen are hunting on what are called hunt clubs. They pay a membership right. to be there. Uh, they, they, invest a lot of time in working on that uh, property, uh, you know, making sure that that electric is ran and fence is taken care of and they've got obligations to keep trails clear. So they've got they've got their own investments that they've made on that property as well as their money. Um, and so that and these hunt clubs are you know thousands of acres, a thousand acres. So if I'm a, if I'm a landowner, if I if I'm Chris Powell from Indiana and I decide that I want to uh, get a, a hunting property in Virginia, and I buy a piece of property on the edge of a hunt club that I know has deer hounds, and I own, I run into this a lot over the years. But say it's a you know I I, I can afford to go down there and buy 30 acres to deer hunt on, but I'm surrounded yeah. by a hunt club. Shouldn't I? have an expectation that there's a good possibility that a deer hound may come across that property, even if I am managing for deer and doing that sort of thing. You know, to me, that's like me deciding to move to Mexico and then complaining because everybody speaks Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, that's a very tough one because I don't know everybody. Let's just say I'll speak from where I'm at. I have this dream of owning property someday. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to afford a, a 300 or a thousand acre section. I'm probably when I start off buying property, I'll probably have to start off buying an acreage, maybe 10 acres or something like that, maybe even smaller. Mm-hmm. And I have this aspiration that, you know, I want to be able to shoot a deer on my own property. Well, don't you feel that regardless of who your neighbors are, that you have the right to manage your property how you want and keep specific things off of your property or keep things on your property. Um, now, he- here's what I will say: If you gotta be careful with the on part, Dan, are you gonna put high fence up or what are you doing? Well, let's just say, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that that makes sense. But you know, let's just say, like, if I'm gonna run, if I'm if I want to have sheep on my property or a farm animal on my right. property, right? Mm-hmm. In out west, it's a fence out. It's it's fence out. So if you don't want cattle or sheep on your property, you have to put a fence up to keep fence, you know, those animals off your property. Mm-hmm. In Iowa, it's a fence in. So if you want to keep, if you 
want to keep if I don't want cattle on my property, the neighbor it's the neighbor's responsibility to build a fence to keep those cattle on their property mm -hmm. and so they don't come on mine. So um, if if there is a and, and I know it's different in different states, but I if I don't want if I don't want let's just say in, in this scenario. If there's a, a, a guy on the neighboring property, right, who he's been doing it his same way for 25, 30, 40 years, and now there's a new landowner over there, I feel that that landowner, both landowners have equal rights to do whatever they want on their own properties. And if the new landowner doesn't want dogs on his property, he should not have dog. He should have the right to have a uh, first off, a community, you know, a conversation with the other landowner, walk up to him and say, Hey, listen, man, I, I, I have no problem with you running dogs. I just don't want dogs on my property. Yep. Right. And I feel there's, I feel that that is a, that's fair and a valid statement. Mm -hmm. Now, if the, if the guy who has the dogs, if he says, you know what, I, I respect your wishes and I'm going to do everything I can to keep uh, keep the dogs off my property. Right. Yep. And both parties need to know that dogs have a mind of their own. They don't know boundaries. And every once in a while, this guy may get a dog on his property. Right. Yeah. I right. feel like he, ha he may have to accept that fact, but if it is a continuous problem where the, the other landowner doesn't just doesn't care, and he's like, whatever, I'm going to do what I've been doing for the last 40 years. I don't care about this guy. I feel that that guy then has a right to take additional steps into, and I, I, I don't know what those steps are, but to prevent that guy from keeping his dog or maybe even take legal action, if that's the right, case, right. to keep those dogs off of his property. As no matter long as what, he doesn't take illegal action. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like I'm saying if he shoots a dog or poisons dogs, that is a crime, right? right. I don't I, exactly. I don't think no one should do that. But if let's save that one. Yeah. <laughs> if if there if this if the 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 landowner who runs dogs is continually I'm not I don't know, can a dog trespass? Well, if, under Indiana law a dog cannot trespass and I don't know of any state that they can because uh uh, trespassing is defined as entering property knowingly yeah against the wishes of the person who controls the land and you would have to uh i don't know who's a dog whisperer you'd have to get them in there to decide whether or not your dog can knowingly do anything <laughs> right absolutely so but at some at some point that landowner may that landowner may have to cross over that fence line to get his dogs and is that trespassing right Right. So yes. Well, just... it depends on it would depend on the state, Dan. Like in Indiana, uh, there is a, a court ruling that says that a hunter, for the purposes of retrieving their hunting dog, may enter into private property without permission. So it's a state by state thing. Yeah. Uh, other states have things that are called commonly referred to as right to retrieve laws, uh, where yeah. it's actually written into the Fish and Wildlife Code, where so and so has. You know, this person has the ability to retrieve their dogs with certain stipulations. So, yeah. uh, you know, circling back, so let's circle back to the, you know, your statement about uh, landowner rights. 
Yeah. Absolutely, 100% do I agree. Uh, even uh, a lot of times people think because I work for the government that I'm like all pro-government. <clears throat> well, I've, even when I was a law enforcement officer doing the, um, it wasn't this recent census, it was a couple of, couple, maybe the last census, I had a census worker come to my house and she wanted to come in my home and do some measurements and take some, and I'm, I'm a, a law enforcement officer standing there and I looked at her and I said, do you have a warrant to come in my home? Well, it's just going to take a few minutes and, and I mean, she had all the credentials and everything. I said, ma'am, you see that truck sitting right there? I said, I have to have a warrant. So I'm very big on private property rights and people's right. privacy. I live at the end, the end of a dead end road for a reason. It's because I want to be private. And, right. uh, even myself, you know, being a houndsman, if I hear a hound on my property, I deserve to know who that is because I'm the one that owns that property. Now, am I going to, I'm not going to deny somebody entry to come in to get that dog, but I deserve to know who it is. Um, so <clears throat> let's take it back to the original analogy that you used about fence in, fence out. Okay, say your neighbor is a cattle farmer and you bought the property next door specifically for managing for whitetail, and yep. you put your food plots out, and you've got a winter wheat, and you've got rape, and you've got, you've got your uh, uh, turnips, and you've got, you've got all these things that you have decided that's what this property needs to grow big bucks. And um, that's your passion. And your neighbor is a cattle farmer, and he does his due diligence. He has good fence up. Everything is, is I, you can tell by looking. I mean, this guy's got quality fence. It's five-strand. Every other one's electrified, you know, and, and you know him. You wave at him when you come in. He waves at you when he goes by, and everything is hunky-dory until a storm comes through in September and a tree falls on the fence, and now you've got 40 cattle standing in the middle of your food plot. Yep. So has that farmer up to that point done his due diligence? Is that an accident or is that negligence on his part? Yeah, that's a tough one. I've, I've, I've heard stories about scenarios like this mm -hmm. and I've heard the story where on both ends, right? Where I've, uh, I've heard the, the landowner who has the food plots. I've heard 40, you know, like a couple head of cattle and they destroyed his, his, uh, bean field or uh, a cornfield or uh, a food plot of sorts, right? They've come in and they've, they've done their business in it. And, you know, maybe they didn't see it for a day or two and they really got into it. And so now everything that this guy's put time and energy and money into <laughs> is ruined. Okay. Right. Or partially ruined or whatever. Then you have the, and it, you know, some I've, I've seen guys be like, like that's an accident. Right. That's an accident. You know, there's not much that I can do about it. You know what? I can't replant right now. Right. Uh, but, but there, there is something there that I feel has been ruined right now, whether these guys are friends or what kind of relationship they have, I don't know. Then I've, um, I've heard from a cattle farmer side of things that a fence got, you know, a tree fell on a fence. It's, uh, the cattle got out. They went into a, a field, destroyed some crops and then there was a lawsuit involved right. because X number of 
um, acres had been destroyed due to this guy's cattle, and I don't really know what the outcome is, but I know that there was legal action taken because the farmer told me, hey, dude, this dude's suing me. Right. I have to come up. He has to come up when he when he combined. I think what happened was when he combined his acreage <clears throat> that he had to get an average bushel for that field, and then he had to pay him what that average was, right. how many – insurance guy came in and, and measured stuff out and said, okay, well this many acres was destroyed. Yeah. And so he had to pay for, for that. But from a, you know, unless you're making your money from it, like let's just say that same thing happened to a, a quote unquote hunting celebrity, right. Or a, or an outfitter or someone who's making money off of that, a cattle comes in, destroys a food plot. Now you don't come to that food plot. And now this guy can't put a client there or he can't film a, a TV show there or whatever. He's dealing with actual monetary loss at that exactly. point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, for the average Joe out there, you know, it's a perceived loss because we, I mean, yeah, you've got, you've, uh, obviously if there's a cow standing in it, that's something that's, that's measurable. The, right. the thing that I was trying to get to was, okay, the farmer has done his due diligence to keep cattle yeah. off your property. Okay, so you're, this is where I, as a houndsman, you've bought, and I've got this exact situation at my house. My neighbor has got 90 acres, and he is a whitetail fanatic. Uh, he's hinge-cut trees. He's done habitat improvement. He's, you know, he puts in a lot of work on that property for the sole purpose of deer hunting. You know, it's my job to go up. I, I've shown him my Garmin tracking slash e-collar equipment um you know i he knows that i have trails around the perimeter of my property so that i can track dogs and cut them off before they get there but we've also got an agreement that if my dog comes on your property come and get it if if your deer comes on my property a big buck you don't want me denying you entry into my property to to yeah to retrieve a 160 inch class whitetail yeah. So uh, a funny story about that before he when he first bought the property before that, he had leased it. And um, <laughs> we had a gentleman's agreement that uh, uh, if my dogs got over there, I could come and get them. And if if his deer came over on my property, he could come and get those. Well, when he purchased it, he decided that he wanted to renegotiate and um uh, he didn't even want me hunting on my property while deer season was in. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I said, then let's look at this whole thing because if you don't want, if I can't come onto your property, then I don't want you on my property retrieving deer because I don't want you messing up my coon hunting. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, he goes, well, I said, you can come in after season and look for your deer. And he said, well, when's that in? I said, January 31st. But running season comes back in February 1st at noon. So next year, October 25th, between the 25th and November 8th, you can come on my property and look for your deer. You know, so he's, yeah. he looked at me. He's like, I think I liked our old deal, deal better. <laughs> and I said, I thought you would. So let's just not get uptight about this. You've got a passion. You've got, you've got something that trips your trigger. I got something. And we will, co we will learn to get along here. So... Yeah. Um, but my point being about the cattle fence out thing, if I'm doing everything 
that I can, and I don't know any houndsmen now that aren't, I really don't know any houndsmen that are not using cutting-edge technology. We don't want those dogs in places that they're not supposed to be. That is yeah. so unnerving for me to be hunting, and I'm watching a Garmin, and I'm a quarter mile away from my truck, and I see a dog fading into property that I don't know who owns it. At that point, I'm just like, I don't know who that guy is. I don't want that dog shot. I mean, we're talking about dogs that are worth thousands, a coon hound, right. could be worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, we've we've had cases in Indiana where coon hounds were shot and, you know, $10,000 awards through the court being awarded back to the to the owner from the person that shot it. So we don't, besides the emotional attachment that you have to these dogs. So we don't want, we don't want our dogs places are not supposed to be. And we, but I think every houndsman needs to accept the responsibility that that dog is their responsibility. Uh, So I'll speak to my listeners a little bit. You know, you can't go out and just think, well, I can turn loose here any place I want and, and I got the right to go get my dog. The first thing you've got, you've got the obligation is to be a decent human being and be considerate of other people and that you're not the only person in the world. But at the same right. time, at the same time, we've got to bridge these gaps between these because I see deer hunters that say damn coon hunters. And I've got, I've got houndsmen that say damn deer hunters. And yep. there's some middle ground that we can reach here. Yeah. I agree. I think I think it all comes back to communication, right? Mm-hmm. And, and just being able to communicate with each other. Um, now, this isn't necessarily specifically a coon hound story, but you know, I have seen farm dogs or wild dogs per se uh, when I was a cameraman. Unsupervised dogs. Unsupervised dogs. <laughs> yes, and I, I saw the same thing. Yeah. So I think what happens is we 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 throw all of that into one basket, right? So we see we see dogs running like a, a farm dog or a wild dog. Um, I'll be honest with you, there was a uh, let's see, this was we call them shit eaters, Dan. Sh- shit shit eaters? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> The dog, the dog that lives at the neighbor's house, you know, you drive by there and you know those suckers are going to be on the road. You, you'll see them a quarter mile away from the house. You'll see them in the yard. You'll see them yeah. on the next road over. It's like, yeah. hey, I know that dog. He, he comes from, he comes from you know, that guy's house over there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that deer hunters don't take into account a lot. It's easy to point the finger at the coon hunter and say, I got a picture of him on my property, and I know that's why I'm not seeing deer. They're not taking into account the numerous dogs that, that especially in rural areas, nobody ties their dog up. I mean, back in the day, that's a great phrase, back in the day, you know, every, everybody had dogs and, and nobody really restrained them. And, and, uh, but we've got, we've got our dynamics, our property owner dynamics, and those things have changed, but we still have dogs that just are pretty much roaming at large. And, and I've personally seen the same thing. You know, the local shit eater is the one that's running your deer. Cause I guarantee you, I don't want my hound running your deer. That's the worst yeah. thing. There is nothing that wastes my time more when I'm out there hunting 
if I'm not hunting deer, if I'm not a deer houndsman in the south, then for my hound to be running a deer, I can do no training with that dog at that point. I, I can't, I'm, I'm taking away from the value of my hunt. So I invest a lot of money and a lot of time to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right, right. And I think, and going back to that, I, I, I honestly think that it is a, I mean, let's talk, talk about that for a second. If, if you're putting uh, coon hounds or um, coon hounds or guys who run deer with their dogs into a basket with all dogs that run around crazy throughout the, the woods, I think there's a, big, there's a big difference because just like you said, it's control right? Those dogs are probably in a kennel at some point throughout the day. Their, their owners know exactly where they are at all times throughout a 24 hour period. I mean, for, for example, let me ask you this, your, <laughs> your, your, your dogs, yep. right. And you, and your neighbor, who's the white tail nut, uh-huh. you don't have your dogs running around your property 24 hours a day, unleashed or unkenneled, right? Roxy, the wonder dog. She's our boxer. She's like yep. a weasel dog family dog she gets she doesn't but i know that she doesn't go anywhere um so go ahead and finish your thought but my 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 hounds my hounds are too valuable to me they don't roam free unsupervised the worst thing that i can do as a houndsman and developing a hound is allow them to have unsupervised time because they're working dogs and if you give them their own time they're going to find something to chase so one of the old adages is you know once a pup gets to the age where he really starts getting out and roaming, he's going to either develop good habits or bad habits. And it's my job to supervise that dog to ensure that he takes, he chooses the right paths in life. <laughs> right. And, and, and there will be some kind of a course correction, so to yes. speak, if yes. that, if that dog gets out of hand. Right. Yes. So, and, and that's with all sporting dogs, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're not going to just be, roaming around they're going to have a collar on them they're going to be they're going to have like you have your garments or whatever and there's some training involved these dogs know what they're doing and it's not like a farm dog where he's just hanging out in a ditch all day or you know what i mean or or whatever right? i'll tell these you two i'll tell you the dogs that that i have been my experience and I, can i can i go back to i want to i want to draw on my experience as an officer because i got these calls yeah. too yep i would get a guy like you who either leased or owned property that says, man, I am getting these pictures of the neighbor's dogs on my property nonstop. And they show me the pictures, they email them to me, text them or whatever. And it's like, I know whose dog that is because I've worked there. I live there. I'm there all the time. And it's a, it's a, uh, it's not a farmer because farmers are on their property all the time, you know? So they're always home and their dogs are usually with them. Most of the time, those the thing that the dog that is owned by a person who leaves for work at seven o'clock in the morning gets home at four o'clock in the evening they're mowing their grass or working in the yard things on the weekend that dog learns that person's schedule because you will go and talk to that person and they'll argue with you they'll say well my dog's always here my dog never goes anywhere I know it's always here. Yeah, it's there when you come home because it knows your schedule. And and so dogs aren't dumb. They are place learners. They they can actually understand that the, the same way that a deer knows when to move. Um, you know, 
before dusk, after dusk, dogs can become conditioned to that sort of thing. So a lot of times those dogs are roaming unawares of their owners and they become argumentative with you until you show them pictures of, is this your dog? Yeah. Yeah, that's my dog. Well, it was, you know, I personally see your dog all over this neighborhood after you leave for work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, from a deer hunting side of things, uh, I've had, uh, uh, this, you know, the same scenario play out where the neighboring farm, it wasn't a farm where anybody lived, but there was dogs there. Mm. Okay. So they, it was like a secondary farm. The, the house was abandoned. Uh, they, they built a new farm or a new house on a secondary piece of property. They, this is funny. There was four dogs or five dogs, all different breeds. They were just like, it was like a gang, just a gang of dogs that would run around the area. They weren't collared and they, uh, and so the farmer or the lady would come by maybe once every four days and just dump an entire bag of dog food Mm. in the front, in the front yard. And that's, that's what she did. right? Right. So she's almost saying, I just don't want these dogs anymore. Right. Right. So those dogs, they would go on a daily loop around, around their, their property, around the, I shouldn't say their property, around the area. The township. Uh, Right. (laughs) These dogs, I'm, and I just remember one day I'm walking out of the timber and I start hearing growling and it was like, you ever seen the National Geographic's where they are shining lights into the darkness in Africa. And all you see is these eyes coming, kind of coming back at you. And it's like a pack of hyenas making these yipping (laughs) noises. Yeah. Just really creepy. And these dogs were coming at me. Right. So I got my knife out and I was like, if I have to stab a dog, I guess I'm going to stab a dog tonight. Luckily I didn't have to do it, but there was a neighboring property where the guy was a diehard deer hunter. He had a, a video series out and he, called up the DNR officer and he's like, these dogs continue to, uh, continue to ruin my hunting. They can, they, they are blowing deer out of my food plots. They're, you know, chasing the deer out of the bedding areas and I don't want that. So of course the DNR officer calls the lady and she's like, Hey, what's up? None of these dogs had collars on them. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, just, I guess shoot them then. <laughs> like that, that's literally what she said. And I don't think any dog got shot, but it was like a couple months later, I think she ended up just taking them to a different farm or t- right, taking, them, right. taking them away. But there, you know, obviously there, there was some communication there. But I honestly, I honestly think there are certain states where if there is an uncollared dog on your property, it has to be uncollared. If it's collared, it's different. But if it's uncollared, then it's under the category of wild. And I think you can shoot those dogs. I have heard of states like that. Indiana is not one of those. We, it's actually yeah. classified as ver- vertebrate animal belonging to another, so it doesn't say anything about collars. But what yeah. I, what we found with collar, and I'll speak to that, is people know that law exists. So let's shoot this hound. We'll take the collars on off of them. We'll throw the collars in a pond. And, yeah. oh, the, the dog was here without a collar on it, so I could shoot it. Yeah. You know, Learn what a sporting dog is. This, I, this is what I want to say to your, your, your audience. Um, learn what a sporting dog is. And, and I want you to consider, I, I would like for every hunter to consider this. What kind of hunter would shoot another sportsman's dog? Or, yeah. 
you know, what kind of what kind of person would actually do that? You have no idea. That could be my daughter used to hunt with me a lot, and she had her she had hounds that were hers. And um, can you imagine what it would be like? For me and my daughter to show up and find her dog dead, and what what she would go through emotionally over that, yep. Yep. and we just have to we have to give people the benefit of the doubt. I think you got you got to if it's a repeated thing, then then yeah. And and I hear this all the time. You know, one of the main culprits for complaints that come in about hunting dogs are the guys that buy the five acre uh, suburban type home on the edge of a huge farm. And then they get upset about a dog running through their place occasionally. But we yeah. have to look the flip side of that as well and consider the fact that if, if you've got permission on five acres to run your hound and it borders a thousand acre piece of property that is managed for whitetail, houndsmen have to do their due diligence too. You're going to burn five, five acres up in about three minutes. Yeah. So that's not going to be the place that you're going to want to hunt and then say, well, I had permission where I turned loose so I can go get my hound. Yeah. We yeah. have to be conscious on both sides of this thing. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Yep. This is a this is a devil's advocate question. Let's say that your neighbor is no longer a deer hunter. He's also a coon hunter, right? Mm -hmm. So you got two scenarios. You guys are best friends and you guys have the same likes and dislikes and you have the same understanding. But let's say that there's the other side of that where he is running his dogs on his property and his dogs hop the fence and it ruins the coon hunting experience for you on your property. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you handle that scenario? You know, that's a good question. Um, because I do have neighbors and, um, uh, that have, have hounds and, um, I'll tell you, it's kind of a funny thing because, you know, I'll be I'll be sitting in my house and I'll hear hounds treat and I'll look out and I can see them on the hillside above the creek, 200 yards from the house. And and first human nature thing is, who the heck is that? Who is that? Right. And so I look out there, and then I I have to. I'm not trying to make myself sound like Gandhi here, okay? I go through the same thing where I've got this deep understanding of all human characteristics, you know. First reaction is, who is that and why are they hunting on my creek? Well, they're on the neighbors. Yeah. And and after I start thinking about it, I think, if I wasn't so damn lazy, I would have been out there hunting first, and I would be treed there instead of them. So, yeah. you know, now it comes a point where you go, you walk out there and you, you uh, or you ride out there on your side-by-side, -side, find out who it is, make sure that, make sure that uh, everybody's got permission and you say, nice dog, buddy. Should have yeah. been hunting here myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think it all come, kind of comes back to, I think, I mean, honestly, is there, other than communication, is there anything else? I mean, laws and regulations, obviously. I, I, I think that as a, as a deer hunter, right, I, I don't know if, I, th I think I think it kind of comes back to this, right? The communication and then the fact that we are all sportsmen under the same umbrella at some point. And there's other, quote unquote, evil forces that are trying to get us all at some point. And as a deer hunter, I feel it's 
in some way, shape, or form my responsibility to help support my brethren who are sportsmen of a different caliber. And if it means that every once in a while one of my deer hunts gets ruined so this guy can go and experience and support the, you know, support something that I may not be, you know, supportive of or not supportive, but I don't do. It's not my pastime, but I understand where his dollars go. I know they go to, you know, he has to buy a license. He has to buy tags. He has to buy ammunition, uh, ammunition, all that stuff. Yep. All that stuff comes back to the outdoors at some, in some way, shape or form supporting small communities. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. whether he's going to buy his gas at a gas station or he's, he's buying dog food or he's, he has to go to a vet at some point, you know, he's supporting the, the economy the same way that I am. And he pays the same taxes that I do. And I, I just feel like it should, uh, it should just be communication and a little bit more understanding for the, the opposite side of the fence. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think everybody will get along better. Yeah. In a perfect world, that's a great, that's a great analogy. And, and, That's the point. That's one of the things that we do on the Houndsman XP podcast. It's to preserve, protect, and promote houndsmen and the and and all ethical pursuit of game using hounds. Mm-hmm. And preserve, protect, and promote. And that means we have to educate ourselves, and we have to be doing stuff like that. But you know, we're not alone on you know becoming deeply entrenched. That's a pretty it's a pretty strong human nature. And, and we become entrenched in our belief system, and it's hard to move people at times on that. But it, the, the current climate we're in in our country right now with the state of hunting, it's time for all hands on deck. And I've got to know that as a houndsman, I, I represent a very slender margin of people, percentage of the population. We've talked about this before on our podcast, Dan, is you know 5% of our population now are hunters. That's, that's getting way down there now. Um, and when you slice that piece of that pie even thinner to see who are houndsmen, then you become a, a point percentage of that 5%. So if I've got an issue with hunting with, with hounds and being able to hunt my hounds, I'm going to need Dan Johnson and all his deer hunting buddies to show up at that Natural Resources Commission hearing or write a letter to their legislators to make sure that hound hunting stays on the landscape because we can't do it by ourselves. And I think a lot of deer hunters think they're willing to sacrifice. Well, those are hound hunters. We'll sacrifice that. I've heard this said numerous times. I'm telling you right now, we can't afford to allow one more of our hunting heritage, our freedoms to be taken away from us because once they get our hound hound hunting hunters off the landscape maybe it's hunting deer from an elevated tree stand maybe it's hunting over bait maybe it's using a uh, an electronic call to call in a coyote Uh, we don't know it's it's not going to stop yeah yep that's a fact man that's a fact what haven't we covered i think you know i think we've covered a lot i think um uh Man, I, 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 I don't know exactly what else to say. I, I think that, again, I just I, I know I repeat myself, but it 
it's just communication and understanding, right? Mm-hmm. I think before you bitch, you should talk and you know say, "Hey, man, if I'm trying to manage deer on my property, or I'm trying to manage this on your property, or hell, I just don't want your dogs on my property," uh, the, the, instead of complaining, what? Grab the beer, grab the coffee, just like you said, and go have go have that that conversation and um so let's just let me ask you this question and let's say that i have done that Mm -hmm. and the opposing person maybe is just a straight up dick they don't care what i say they don't care what i think what should i do from that point are you talking as a deer hunter or are you talking as a houndsman? Because if you're a houndsman, I'm, I'm, I'd tell, I'd say go for it, man. Tell him go pound sand. Just do what yeah. you – no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you run those deer out of the county. Yeah. Yeah, you get rid of those deer, you won't have to worry about him. You know, a, friend, a, a guy I worked with for a number of years, we dealt with a lot of deer hunters over the years. You know, everybody talks about coon hunters being outlaws, but if you stacked up – the number of cases, you know, fish and wildlife violations over my career. It, the number of deer cases I have, you wouldn't even be able to find the coon hunting, the houndsman cases, you know. Uh, so <laughs> for officers, we get pretty jaded about deer hunting um, at times. Some of our officers are very... I, I deer hunt. I archery hunt. I, I, I hunt with a traditional bow. I've got um, three, two deer in the Pope and Young, in uh, that that would score for Pope and Young. Uh, I've got one that that would probably go in the Indiana record book. I've just never done that because of that jaded opinion I had as a conservation officer. I, I know what they score, but I didn't I didn't enter them because I didn't want it be to be misconstrued. So when I talk about these things, I am very well-versed. You know, uh, Barry Wenzel, uh, I'm yep. sure you know who he is. You know, you talk about you hunted a property for a couple days and then you didn't see him. I remember when Barry Wenzel came up with a formula of the the number of times you hunt a particular stand your odds of seeing deer will decrease by 30%. You know, I, Barry Wentzel actually came up with that theory. Uh, yeah. I've been to all those things. So, you know, when I, I know where you're coming from, and I just think that we are to a point in deer hunting is absolutely the cash cow for fish and wildlife agencies, especially east of the Mississippi River, uh, becoming more predominant west of the Mississippi River now. Uh, deer hunters are have the ability to uh, move the needle on fish and wildlife issues to a point where it feels like some people get swept, swept to the side. Uh, small game management and things like that have become not as sexy um, because they, they aren't the cash cash cow that, that deer hunting is. So I can tell you this, houndsmen and deer hunters need to figure out a way to find that, that ground, that middle ground where you're as, you are as dedicated to your deer hunting or I'm as dedicated to my hounds 
as you are your your deer as you are your deer hunting and yeah. we've even said it before and and I hope I don't offend any of your my my pursuit requires 365 days a 365 day commitment from me that is a living breathing animal that I've got to care for I've got to vet I've got to train I've got to you know do that sort of stuff as a deer hunter and being one myself I can hang my archery equipment on the wall and not even look at it until July and be proficient to with it with either a stick bow or a compound to be deer hunting in in September easy yep so you know I've even challenged deer hunters my my commitments I've got a lot of lot committed here and I'm not I don't take it lightly yeah I, and I, uh, I agree. I mean, I, obviously you have dogs to, to feed and water and all that stuff. And, but I think, uh, it, it comes down to that's your choice, right? Yep. You know, the, it's also your choice to not pick your bow up until July. I know a lot, of, you know, I know a lot of guys on the opposite side who bow hunting 365 or, or deer hunting, especially if they're managing a farm and they're doing habitat work and they're planting food plots, that's a 365 day uh, planning preparation and putting that all that into action. Right. There is, there is no doubt. My neighbor yep. thinks yeah. about deer hunting 365 <laughs> days a year. I know he does. And I, he's got a beautiful, <laughs> yeah, he's got a beautiful piece of property. He puts in the work and you know, his commitment level is, is way up there. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, and just that, what you said, right. You have this strong commitment to, to, Hound hunting, I have a strong commitment to uh, whitetails mm-hmm. and deer hunting or whatever. I, it's a two-way street. Like, again, I mean, we have sim- we have more similarities than we do differences. And there is no I doubt think, about that. Yeah, and I think that that's what we need to focus on is the similarities and not the differences. I agree, Dan. You know, it's um, we're hunters. You yep. know, we're hunters, and and um, that's that's the main common common thread we share in this yeah. intricately woven blanket. So, yeah, and it's funny. Uh, I got this uh, question asked the other day. I think like, you asked me a question. I don't know if I answered it or not. Do you remember what that question was? When my, was that? Uh, just a second ago, I got on some kind of soapbox, and I felt like did I answer your question? Yeah, I think he answered it. Okay, all right. I'm pretty sure he answered it. But someone asked me a, a while ago, they said, you know, what would happen if you couldn't if you couldn't hunt deer anymore? Well, I had this uh, a while ago. I, I almost broke down in tears. I, I was just like, oh, my God, what would happen if I honestly couldn't bow hunt anymore? Right. I, I, I would lose part of myself, right? Mm-hmm. I, I It's who I am. It's my definition, right? But if I couldn't bow hunt, let's just say they took it away or it just stopped to exist, I'd go fish. Well, what would you do if you couldn't fish? Well, then I'd go hunt turkeys. Well, what would happen if you couldn't hunt turkeys? Well, then I would, I would trap. Well, what would happen if you couldn't trap? Well, then I'd probably run dogs. If you couldn't run dogs, what would you do? I'd, I'd look for mushrooms. Well, if you couldn't look for mushrooms, what would you do? Just like I, it, it all revolves around nature. It revolves around outdoors and how we express our love for nature and the outdoors in many different ways is still boiled all down to our love of nature in the outdoors, right? right it's right. not, I'm not collecting stamps. 
right? I am, I'm outside, and, and that's the common denominator in all of this. Yep. You know, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll go a little bit farther. Have you ever seen that video of the uh, New York City rat catchers? Oh, yes. So oh, you, you've got all these people. You know dang well that they are all, when you start talking about things, what, taking things away, uh, the, the primeval nature of man is we are hunters, okay? Yeah. We are hunters. And I don't care wh- what concrete rat colony you put people in, deep down inside, they get satisfaction of when they swat a fly. I killed that fly. Or, you know, and in some, in this case, these guys were f- cool. They they had all these little lap dogs out there from Jack Russell Terriers to, to Shih Tzus. And their job was to take on the rat colonies in New York City. And I thought, I guarantee you those people, if they looked at the pursuit of a bear with a hound, they would think, oh, that's wrong. Or they yeah. saw Dan Johnson out there, you know, shooting a deer with an arrow Oh my goodness, I can't believe he'd do that. But you've got this video evidence of all these people that are like, I've got a dog, he's catching rats, and none of them are going, oh, that's horrible. They're all like, yeah, I got one over here. You know? I saw a video of what you're talking about where the guy has an air rifle and he's in the sewers in some major city, I think it was New York, and he's he's created a, a ground blind of garbage. And he's waiting. He's waiting for these rats to come out of these little pipes. Right. And when they do, he he pops them, and he stacks up like fourteen or some rats in in a single day. Yeah. And I'm telling you, that person right there. I mean, obviously, it takes a rare breed to sit in a sewer and hunt rats, right? I mean, I, I probably wouldn't eat that meat if I was him, but. That right there, there, there's a common thread there, Yep. right, between yep. a guy who sits in a ground blind to hunt deer and a guy who builds a ground blind out of trash to shoot rats. There is a, there's a conversation that could be had there. There's a connection there that could be had. There's some similarities there. You know what I mean? Right, right. So. I have a question for you. I know we're getting long on time. I don't know how much time you've got. We try not to talk about time on our podcast because right. uh, that's not what it's about. But, so I've got a question. Yes, sir. Do you think that do you think that most hunters feel that hunting with a hound is not fair chase or gives the houndsman an unfair advantage on catching game? Yeah, that's a good question because in Iowa we don't have we, we can't use dogs to chase deer. Mm-hmm. But we can party hunt, which means we can drive deer. Right. So now we have this gray area. What's the difference between a group of people walking through the woods, pushing deer and funneling deer into, you know, uh, a guy who's sitting on the top of a hill post and waiting for him to all pile out of this finger and then he starts unloading on him. Right. That's that's what party hunting is. That's what drive hunting is. So whether you're using dogs or whether you're using humans, in my opinion, it's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. There's only one thing that's different the dog may jump onto private property, right? right. A, a human right. know a human knows that they can't do that, mm-hmm. right? So when it comes down to ethical, right, whether it's ethical or not, I think there was a huge debate even, I want to say 10 years ago, in certain states, it was still legal to use poisonous arrows 
to hunt deer or hogs or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have any specifics, but I think obviously that kind of got pushed aside, right? Okay, no longer you can no longer use poison to kill a deer or animals, mm -hmm. right? So that tradition kind of got swept away at some point because I don't I don't know. Uh, it depends. Like I'm sure it, there are certain places in Africa. As a matter of fact, I watched a documentary on it where a guy put poison on his arrow and he threw it or a spear and he threw it at a gazelle who what's the definition of ethical is ethical i mean for him it's about 100 percent eating meat mm -hmm. because that's how this dude survives is he spears that that animal dies because of the poison or from the the spear tip and he he tracks it down and he feeds his family with it there's actually a frog in south america called the poison arrow frog Yes, yes. And uh, the natives will just scrape their arrow tips along the back of this frog. They'll find it, and yep. it, it actually excretes a poison through its skin, and then they'll shoot monkeys with it. Yes. So, so getting so, back to the original question. Yeah. So is, is hounds chasing a deer ethical? Let's talk, about, I, let's talk about lions. Let's talk about – it seems to come up the most in my circles with bear, with black yeah. bear. Yeah, I, I would say that that is ethical. It, I, I would say that it is ethical because there's no difference in my there. There's subtle differences, but the main objective is to find an animal and shoot it, mm -hmm. right, and consume it or take it, right. Whether you're doing that with a big group of humans driving deer or you're banging that animal up. And, and you're shooting it in a tree, it's standing still, it is not moving or running, mm -hmm. that's an ethical shot, right, if that animal's not, not, not running, right? So yeah. it's just a group of dogs that are running through some ground and banging an animal, keeping it in one spot. I, don't, I personally don't see any problem, problems with that. Yeah, I, I, hear a lot of, I hear a lot of controversy around that, and if you get on some of the general... Uh, hunting sites on social media you'll see uh, people on both sides of the issue and and since this is a collaboration i i would like to add a little bit to that perspective yeah, go for it um, you know there's a few things to consider here uh, for the people who say that hunting with dogs is gives the hunter an unfair advantage the first thing i would say and this is kind of funny but if you look at the, the, the most ancient drawings on cave walls, it shows man and dog pursuing game. If that was such a daggone effective way to pursue game with a spear and a dog, then why do we allow people to hunt with, with compound bows? You yeah. know? I mean, that's technology way far away from caveman. So... Uh, it, that's the obvious, you know, and I always, I always consider that. It's like, you know, if that's really so, if it's so easy, then why did the caveman continue to uh, advance his technology? On if, if a dog and a spear is all I ever need to feed everything I've ever got, then, then why did mankind continue to develop ways to, to take food? So yeah. <laughs> right. that's, that's one thing. Just uh, imagine this for a scenario, Chris. What would happen... Today, if there if it was legal 
in today's world where my job was to scare a whole bunch of deer off a cliff and they absolutely that's, that's how they died and they died by by blunt force with gravity like they right. met gravity and fell down but that's how i that's how i i fed my family and that's how i like to hunt right right there would be a shit storm about that so yes. obviously there's been some evolution right and you know right. I, it, right. it's it just comes down to like all these bitching about differences and how and people think certain things are unfair. I, I don't get that. You bring up an interesting point because we do have laws on the books where, you know, things were too effective. Yeah. So we did away with that. You take away like market hunting and, and punt gun, punt guns on the front of duck boats in the Chesapeake Bay where they would kill, you know, thousands of waterfowl a night where it almost led to the demise of our waterfowl. But, you know, in the, in the case of, of hunting with a hound, I think a lot of people feel that the hound is doing all the work. And it's largely, those opinions largely come from people, if you drill down into it and you ask them, have you ever, have you ever hunted a black bear behind a hound, with a hound? Have you ever done that? You know, they watch videos of it and they think, they see when the dogs are turned loose, and then they watch the walk, the final 50 yards into that tree, and they see a black bear sitting there. So they put two and two together and come up with five because they have no context to base that on. They don't see all the work that went into raising that hound, to training that hound, to actually getting out there and getting... Black bears don't go places that are easy. They go places that are hard. Same way with, with lions. I mean, I've... I've chased lions across stuff that makes your butthole pucker up because it's like <laughs> you got ice on the rock and you got a, a, a 40, 50, 100 foot drop and places it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do if, if a dog gets out there. I, it, but lions will go those places. So to think that's unfair advantage is, is just to put it bluntly, it's ignorant. It's, it comes out of ignorance and, and not stupidity, but ignorance there. There's no experience on the other side of that statement. Yeah. Normally the well, other, that, go ahead. And that's, that's why, like for me, I'll, I'll be honest with you on my bucket list or my list of things that I want to accomplish in my life when it comes to hunting, let's just say running dogs with a mountain lion or chasing a mountain lion is not high on that list. Mm-hmm. Right. It's because at this time in my life, there's other things that I want to do, but I'm not going to talk crap on that activity because I've never experienced that uh, activity. I'm not educated about that activity. Therefore, how can I have a, a an argument or even a conversation with someone if I don't know what what that activity is and what goes into that activity? Yep. Yep. And and to speak to that particular part of this, I would say that there was a time in my life where if if I got off work at three thirty, you know, I, I took my hunting clothes and my bow in my patrol vehicle with me, so I could be parked at my hunting hunting spot at three thirty, go off the air, change into that into those clothes, and get in that tree stand. I get it. I understand it. You know, um, so I, I know where people are coming from. I, I've been accused, say I do the same, I've done the same thing with coyote hunting, all kinds of things, you know, calling coyotes. So 
just because it's not my thing anymore, I mean, really sitting around listening to guys tell deer hunting stories is like a big yawner for me. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, it is. It is, and, and I understand that, that probably listening to me talk about hound, hound dog stories, there are deer hunters out there that are like, eh, you know, that's not my cup of tea. But the thing is, I have to understand that we're all in this thing together. It's all yes. hands on deck. We can't afford. I've got to at least support what they're doing and be able to sit down and have that conversation. You know, yes. um, so that, that that's I wanted to add that to your statement on that. The other yes. thing that I would add about hound hunting, okay, you know, like I said, this comes up a lot in black bears. We had a, this big debate in a restaurant in montana because you are not allowed to it's illegal to pursue black bears in montana with hounds but it's a big spot and stalk state we were there lion hunting mountain lion hunting and they asked this this person asked us do you hunt with hunt bear with your hounds and you're, you're kind of thinking well not in Mo you have to say well not in montana but we do other places you know and then it turned into this big debate of whether or not it was fair and whether it was fair chase and and she was deeply entrenched in her ideas. She was a bear hunter. But this is what I would say. There is probably no other time. There's probably no other time in a hunter's experience where they have the opportunity to put eyeballs on an animal and make a good decision whether or not that animal is good to be harvested to be taken off the landscape is it a mature mature boar you can do a lot same way with a lion and i've done it with coons believe it or not so it's actually a that's great conservation that. it, tool yeah that's funny you say that because i did watch a uh, a video online of a mountain lion hunt with dogs and the guy got it in the tree and he said that's not what i'm looking for pulled his dogs off and he went about his business yep that, so that's a great point. I traveled all over. I spent a month in the western United States, and I have mountain lion tags. We treat lions that, that could have been taken. But to me, I'm not against people shooting lions. Obviously, I'm a hunter. But I, I, I'm there for the, the fact that I raised that dog. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He treated this lion. That's what's in it for me. I, I'll have somebody else come in and 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 follow me with a tag to take the lions i take pictures train hounds and have a good time yeah but there's no That's other cool, time in my experience as a sportsman where i've got the ability to really evaluate the quality of the animal in the tree than than when i'm hunting with hounds yeah yeah makes a good point makes a good point well you ready to wrap this thing up dan yes sir i think we've kicked this can down the road far enough I think so. I think so. I, I think, I think honestly, this is a great conversation. I think we, uh, you know, we're both from quote unquote different parties. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, uh, we had a, we had a conversation and we didn't, we're not going to kill each other. Right. Right. You know so, what? And it wasn't like a big kumbaya session where we all had to get along. Exactly. Um, you know, we have different opinions on things. We talked about some, some topics that, um, uh, are, are near and dear to us. And, and we've obviously from your business, Dan, with your podcast, you're, you talk to that group and I talk to the, to the people in my following and it's a good message to get out there. Yeah. And 
and one of and I'll just speak from a business standpoint, uh, not not even a business standpoint, more of a hunters unite standpoint that the reason that I got so excited about having the Houndsman XP podcast on the Sportsman's Nation is because of what we talked about today. And it, it's it's that there are other methods and forms of being a sportsman's than just your big game hunting, your turkey hunting, your fishing, right? Mm-hmm. There there is, I would put you guys in a smaller category as far as you know. There's there's more people who are deer hunters right. than there are than there are houndsmen. There's and, way too many deer hunters. <laughs> <laughs> now now you start. <laughs> Now people are going to stop listening, all right? We're at Watch the end. Yeah. <laughs> I just invalidated everything I said. <laughs> oh, here's where we here's where we start fighting. No. <laughs> but, I mean, it's because voices like your guys' need to be heard and that the message that you guys are promoting is the same message that I'm promoting. And it's go outside and enjoy nature and, you know, support your brother sportsman. Agreed. Agreed. There's, we've got to find ways to, to, uh, build bridges, not build walls. That's right. The time demands it. At at this point in our history, that is what is demanded of us as sportsmen. We have to find ways to build bridges, not walls. Yep. Absolutely. I agree. Well, Dan, I'm going to, I'll put our tagline on the end of this one and, uh, you can, you can do what you want with it, but, uh, uh, if you go hound hunting with me, I'm going to hand you a leash and you're probably going to have to handle a hound. Okay. And, uh, that dog's going to be your responsibility. And when we turn these hounds loose, you know, my dog, the dog I'm handling may go one way and the dog you're handling may go another way. But okay. the number one rule is you follow your hound. I'll follow mine. Got it.